0: Hello and welcome to Civic Minded Responsible Thrill Seeking Females. This is Feminism Out Loud, the Australian we podcast where women win, talk feminism.
1: And happy to share the With my sisters and my friends who struggle down this road.
0: I'm Laura, I'm Fraser.
2: I'm Rachel and Talia unfortunately couldn't join us today but she'll be back next month.
0: We would like to acknowledge that feminism out loud is produced on the land of the Nunga and muanina people we wish to acknowledge the elders past present and emerging this land was never ceded it always was and always will be aboriginal land we just like to say a big thanks
3: to everyone who's liked our facebook page and shared our posts and everything and to everyone for their really kind words because the response to this has been so much bigger and so much more positive than we ever could have anticipated. And, yeah, we'd just like to say a big thank you.
2: So welcome to our second episode. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about uh, women in public space. So we're going to have a bit of a discussion about what we mean when we say public space and why it's so important. Then we're going to talk about how women are and have been excluded. Um, And then we're going to have a bit of a look at some of the campaigns uh, that women have run around the world to fight some of that exclusion and get women into the public sphere. So I guess the first thing to start off with is a bit of a discussion about what we mean when we say public space. Mm. And I, for me, I guess there's sort of um, this distinction in um, society in the way that we live our lives between the private sphere, so the home and sort of the family and where people are uh, removed from contact with larger society, and then the public sphere, which is everything from... Uh, You know the streets the cities uh, but also things like the workplace and education so um, it's a very important thing for people to have access to uh, and very important that um, for women's participation in society that we are able to fully access all of those public areas
0: Mm. I think that yeah when we say public space people most often think the street and Which I don't think is bad, like, in terms of discussion and things like that, mainly because, like, the workplace and education have, like, their own issues and their own concerns that are very, very specific to that place. So I guess if you're seeing public spaces and overarching everything outside the home, it is, of course, a massive sphere of women's lives and opportunities for things to happen or for things to go well. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, as feminists, we do spend a lot of
3: time talking about the private sphere, which is one like, obviously makes sense. That's where a great, great deal of misogyny plays out. But I think to have that misogyny play out in the private sphere, it is also has to have a, another component of forcing women back into that sphere or maintaining like the fact that we stay in that sphere where that violence can be done to us. So I think that, you know, analysing the way that the public sphere is designed to keep women out of it and in the, in the private sphere is, you know, an important thing for feminists to do.
2: Yeah, and I think not only does, does women's exclusion from public space mean that they end up, uh, you know, at home um, and not participating, it also means that it's harder for women to connect with each other and it's harder for women to organise because they are kept quite separate. Uh, and one of the important things about public life is the ability for to, uh, and in an activist sense, um, to be able to organise and to, uh, yeah, sort of have that impact on society and that, input, um, and that public participation. Mm,
0: I think that point about isolation is really, really a key point of basically scaring women away from public space is that it does stop us from being able to forge those connections and those relationships and also the those sort of shared understandings in a space where we might be away from men because obviously that's also another factor in parts of the world or also throughout history of whether women whether they feel safe going into the public sphere but also if they are able to do so by themselves um, without a male with them like yeah that ability to yeah. just exist with other women in the public sphere is really really important for maintaining male supremacy because it keeps us separate yeah i think it also offers you know
3: a whole host of like really material benefits to women being able to move through the public sphere comfortably like employment Mm. which allows less being tied to terrible terrible men and you know basically the capacity to exist outside of men which is really important for safety for leaving abusive relationships blah 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 all that sort of stuff like requires that capacity to function socially without an attached man
0: Hmm. it's Yeah. yeah it's like what else yeah so i guess it's sort of what else is there for women if we can't go outside yeah we've only got that private sphere which is shit a lot of the time
2: yeah so i guess it's sort of i think it comes down the importance for women comes down to two things first of all it's the personal so it's women as individuals being able to live fully realized lives uh by having that uh, that presence in public and the ability to function autonomously and independently, uh, and secondly, for women as a group, the ability to meet one another, to organise, um, and to to function as a as a political force and as a social force, we need to be able to have that public interaction. So yeah, it's sort of important on both of those two levels. Isn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, how are you supposed to protest if you can't go on the street?
2: Yeah, which sort of leads us to kind of you know the, the various ways that women have been excluded from the public sphere and why we're sort of talking about this in the first place. There's been a lot of things that have kept and do continue to keep women out of public life and out of the public sphere. One of the main ways that women are excluded from public space, and this is a very general thread that runs through this whole discussion, is the the threat of violence. So not only mm. uh, the assaults and violence that women do face in public but that constant threat and the effect that that has on how we live our lives and where we go and when
3: yeah no I think it's important yeah to acknowledge that male violence exists not only like as you know it it functions as a tool of patriarchy not in like only in the sense of an individual man doing violence to an individual woman right or like even that violence itself right like that exists as basically a form of terror that keeps women in line basically and it does function to keep women out of the public sphere right because one of the most compelling reasons to not go somewhere is you're afraid you're going to get like killed or raped or bashed or whatever for going there and i think mm-hmm. that's a really like blatant example that we we as women just sort of accept in our lives that if we go outside you know we might get attacked if we walk alone at night you know we might get attacked and i think that's yeah
0: mm-hmm.
3: one of those things that we yeah and we can granted.
2: see this we can see this in how women alter their routines so women are less likely to go out at night. They're less likely to go out alone. Uh, when we do go out at night, like we're all sort of, we look around us everywhere we go. You know, we're, we're much more vigilant, I think, than um, that is necessarily recognised or given credit. There's Yeah, there's various ways that that sort of threat of violence is reinforced as well. So we had a bit of a discussion on the last episode we touched on the issue of catcalling and street harassment. And I think it's very important to bring this up in this context, because street harassment functions basically to sort of put women in their place and remind them that they're not seen as having the right to to walk around in public in the way that men are, and so they're harassed and made to feel uncomfortable, as mm-hmm. as it's a dominance display basically in a way of sort of a reminder that women are not welcome, that they're not secure in public space.
0: Yeah, I think one of the like one of the key things about women not feeling welcome in public, and particularly with something like catcalling, is that. Like, it, it, it really is just the threat of violence that keeps most of us in line. Like, we know that while there's a lot of kind of what I guess you'd understand as lower level acts that happen in public spaces, like being raped, for example, is something that doesn't happen very commonly by strangers. That's something that is much more confined to the private sphere because it's generally with people that you know. But when you consider the amount of women that are just kind of touched without their consent in passing or really briefly or even in a way that people can make seem accidental or women who have men expose themselves in public when there's not a huge amount of other people around, like they're generally lower level acts that people can pass off a lot more commonly or that they can just kind of ignore because it's not as important. But it's those sort of things that, A, function by themselves because they are distressing enough regardless of what men like to think of those sorts of things. It's still just tying in to the fact that it's just an overwhelming threat regardless of how many of us actually experience extreme violence or would actually be beaten up or something like that in public. It's just the threat that keeps us in line.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you said there as well about how we sort of we can brush these things off and they're not seen as maybe as serious as they should be. And I think about catcalling specifically, there's a lot of, there is some discussion that goes on about this that's very, it's not only minimizing, but it sort of implies that catcalling is complementary because it's often sort of commenting on women's bodies and implying that they're attractive. And there was actually um, Malcolm Roberts was interviewed by Patricia Carvellis on Drive a couple of weeks ago he's a one nation senator and he made the comment that um in in reference to wolf whistling that some girls think that that is wonderful you know they smile and i think there is sort of sometimes this perception that it is somehow complimentary or that women should be glad that you know that they're, they're getting the attention and or that some women like it yeah it's very interesting that people would approach that this way first of all because the, the implication that having complete strangers com- uh, comment on your body in public is a nice thing to happen seems quite bizarre and quite tone deaf to me but also i think it's interesting he's made this comment about women smiling in response to being lawful sort of and one of the things that happens with street harassment is even when it's only ver- only verbal quote unquote there's still that, not only the that general underlying threat of violence but also sometimes when women do respond uh in a less than positive way it, it escalates and it's more likely to get um, more abusive or to become physical violence and so this sort of ties into women not only I guess what happens to them being minimised a bit but also how women are ex- often respond to things like this in a positive way to avoid the threat of escalation so it's not even necessary even when women are smiling when these things happen it's not necessarily because they're complimented or they've enjoyed it but because it's, it's an attempt to stop things escalating even further.
3: Mm. Yeah, I think it's also the thing of women just smile as, de- as a defense mechanism. Like I know that that's what I do. Like sometimes, as you know, you just start smiling as a defense mechanism. That's yeah, mm. it's to diffuse the situation yeah, almost. It's to diffuse the situation, right? Yeah, I think that yeah, yeah a lot of conversations about um, yeah, catcalling and wolf whistling seem to ignore yeah the wider social context that these actions are taking place in right they're not just taking place in like a vacuum right like there's the reason that like i think that every single ad campaign that or like so like i don't know think piece or i don't even know what to call it but every time someone says a thing of like how would men like it if like you know women were just complimenting them on the street and that sort of thing Mm. i don't think that's a useful illustration at all right because it's not just the fact that catcalling exists it's the fact that catcalling exists in a system of patriarchy where male violence is absolutely rampant like i don't if women weren't you know raped i don't think catcalling would be nearly as bad like i don't think it'd happen Mm. obviously without patriarchy but i don't think it'd be like as terrifying and distressing of a thing right it's that social context that makes yeah because none of us mind i don't know getting a compliment from a little old lady on the bus or something
0: (laughs) about generally you know not about your body or something but that sort of compliment is generally fine Oh, they just go straight for my hair, like, <laughs> and that's fine. Like, it's it's gotten a bit tiring after twenty years, but yeah, little old ladies liking my red hair is not distressing. Yeah, <laughs> whereas a dude commenting on your body, that's distressing generally. Yeah, it's like obviously a they do it in different ways, yeah. and b
3: there's that power, there's that system of power that underlying the interaction that is really you know what gives it its like massive distressing potential.
0: Hmm. I find I do find it interesting whenever p- like this like the discussion around. How women as a monolith uh, feel about catcalling. Because I don't think that Malcolm Roberts is completely wrong to say that some women like catcalling. Like, having, Mm. you know, spoken to other women about this, women who aren't feminists, even some who are, and even just myself being a dumb teenager who was a lot more keen for male validation, like, some women do take catcalling as a compliment, they don't really see it as a threat. Which I think is a doesn't change anything because as a man on the street, you you don't know which women are going to appreciate this and which aren't. If you know you're but... being informed that a large number of women would find this behavior unpleasant or threatening or distressing, that maybe you shouldn't take that risk. Maybe your opinion isn't important enough to risk upsetting someone like that. And in addition to that, like you'll like I think I think it's something that feminists could address a little bit better I know that's kind of like a standard um like consciousness raising concern about how women do feel about getting that uninvited male attention in the street but you know women do want male validation a lot of us do anyway and a lot of women do sort of get a weird like ego boost almost from that sort of attention because as much as it is unwarranted it does give confirmation that they're doing something right under patriarchy. Like, they've been not necessarily worthy of this man's attention, but they've been worthy of some attention, and that's what women are taught to strive for in our lives, so I don't think it's a surprise that, yeah, some women do enjoy catcalling, and for some reason that's meant to be good enough to subject the rest of us to it. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, socialisation is a thing,
3: and patriarchy wouldn't exist if it wasn't really good at, like, worming its way inside women's heads.
2: Yeah, I guess I guess the thing to, that I would sort of stress about all of this is just that, like like you were saying before, that you can't if you're you can't you can you can not tell how people are going to respond, and there may well be women out there who take catcalling and street harassment as complimentary, but there are also lots of women for whom it will completely ruin their day because it's such a reminder that they can't walk around in public without. Of being reminded that they, they exist as others you know they're not people who can just walk around but they're women and so they're kind of marked and they sort of you know are subject to this wherever they go so it can be yeah incredibly distressing as well and a, and a reminder of sort of who owns public space and who's got a right to walk around free from being harassed
3: yeah it's a thing I like if you break into someone's house and steal their fridge maybe like they really wanted to get rid of that fridge anyway <laughs> Um, but chances are you're ruining their day. <laughs> like, you might be helping, but chances are you're ruining
0: their day, so maybe don't steal people's fridges. Exactly. <laughs> There's actually a research project that's kind of just been launched, released, I don't know, in Melbourne. Um, it's called Free to Be, and they've got, like, a thousand participants or something to go around Melbourne and mark places and streets and stuff where they feel safe or unsafe and it's kind of interesting to look at because first of all you look at the picture of the map that they've got and the red vastly vastly outweighs the green and they um they identified places like um flinders street station as unhappy and like their state library as a happy place and all that sort of thing and it's kind of interesting because um like when you read the article in the sydney morning sydney morning herald about it They come to like the researchers come to a really, really weird conclusion (laughs) about why this is the case. They seem to think, I don't think they're completely wrong because they've concluded that there's a link between like happy, quirky, kind of like unique, happy brands and their signage that seems to result in a happy face from women. But when you go to streets that are more dominated by masculine names like Hungry Jacks or Lord of the Fries they see a lot more unhappy faces. And I just, I cannot believe that they've concluded that somehow the signage or the masculinity of the names involved is what makes these places safe or unsafe, ignoring the fact that all these cool little quirky brands with their, like, sandwich boards and stuff out the front of their stores, they market to women. Like, these are women's, sp- these are women's spaces. They are the consumers for these products. Like, that's where women are going to be going, and you're going to have less men there. As soon as you go out to a street that's not so specific for women, because it's women's shopping, you're gonna start seeing more men around. You're gonna start seeing more sad faces from women.
3: Yeah, I think also was did I don't know about the study. Like I, I I I know what was in the City Morning Herald article, but I'm just wondering if there was like a thing of because it was purely about how how safe women feel, right? So I was wondering if there was an actual any sort of attempt to sample how many threatening like gestures or whatever for men actually happen in these particular areas. So it literally could be like the, the like HJs that's open at 4am probably has more drunk dudes harassing women at it than like the quirky donut cafe. That's yeah. Not open up and not open at 4am or
0: whatever. They do actually have a lot of comments. Yeah. I think adding a,
2: adding a temporal dimension to this would have been really quite important because there are places where at nine o'clock on a Monday morning, it's going to be very, very different to uh, in the dark when people are heading home there's maybe fewer people around. So yeah it's interesting that they haven't sort of made that information available as well because I would imagine that that would be quite important. And yeah that they, the fact that they've chosen to sh- focus on shop fronts was also quite odd given I mean they, they, they did mention some of the things like the amount of traffic. so they said that places that are uh, well lit and busy but not too crowded tend to be the ones that where people felt most safe. Whereas if they're less busy, often people feel more isolated and more vulnerable. Uh, if they're less well-lit, then they feel more vulnerable as well. But on um, the flip side of that is that if they were too busy and too bustling, um, things often went in the other direction and people felt unsafe once again because are, there's, there's increased possibility for groping and things like that that happen uh, in large packed crowds. So, yeah, it's interesting that they've chosen to focus on the signage.
0: They have allowed for an option for um, when women drop a pin on the map to make a comment about why they feel that way about the place. And yeah, shockingly, most of the sad faces on the map do have a story of assault to go along with it. Um, They haven't collected that in any sort of systematic way, though. I think it's just to kind of demonstrate to people why women feel like this.
3: This is such an interesting way of, like, an interesting study. I'm just like, the sample bias that must be going on. Obviously, like, <laughs> a useful pre- preliminary study, but, like, you know,
0: Jesus Christ, the sample bias. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, no. Um, There's been quite a few of these sort of things happening at the moment, actually. I know there have been quite a few universities that have surveyed yeah. um, a segment of their female population to see where they feel safe or unsafe on campus generally Mm -hmm. to try and improve things but they tend to do that by adding a few more lights instead of addressing (laughs) the culture on many university campuses and certainly male culture generally
2: yeah so well i mean it's i think the sort of the conclusion that the the masculine nature of the names Honey jackson lord of the fries is probably a little bit of a stretch when sort of deciding you know how how women are likely to operate in public space Uh, uh, it is an interesting yeah, it is, it is kind of a good way to start the next part of this discussion, which is about things like advertising because that's another very important, like in the, sa- in the same way I think that catcalling functions as sort of a reminder of, you know, women's place and where their should shouldn't be and who can sort of claim the right to walk freely around in public. I would argue that sexist advertising fulfills much of the same role as well. Mm. And um, having objectified images of women around, can make a very big difference to how sort of welcome women feel in society.
0: Mm, definitely. It just kind of – I'd say it does two things of kind of from the outset it sets up that this is not for you, women. Like while a, a lot of sort of sexualized advertising can end up targeting women because it's more of a don't you want to look like this, don't you want to get some male attention, most of it that you kind of see day to day I'd say is – either explicitly targeted or met at men or it has men in mind because that's how the ad's going to get attention. And it also functions to just plain make women uncomfortable. Like, images aren't for us. It makes you really kind of, even if only on a subconscious level, it makes you kind of more aware of the fact that you are a woman. Like, this is how women are seen. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you
3: know, there's two two purposes of objectifying advertising and both of them end up making women uncomfortable because, you know, it's targeting men with basically, you know, sex cells and all of that sort of stuff. Mm. And then there is like, like, look at these, like, things you, look at these things, these women you can acquire if you drink our beer or whatever. And then there's also, like, more insidious, less over, like, you know, advertising, like, sexualized advertising that targets women, right? So, like, objectified, like images of women selling lingerie and stuff. Like, obviously, women are the ones who are going to be buying that product, but that advertising has to make women feel uncomfortable because the idea is basically, like, you know, you need to buy our product to be sufficiently sexual, to be, like, sufficiently attracted to men. You are not good enough if you don't buy our product, right? Like, it's capitalism, yay. The images of women under capitalism are always going to serve to basically, like, you know, turn women into consumers, and the best way to get people to consume something is to make them feel unhappy without it.
0: mm, mm. It also yeah, it does a great job of teaching women to view ourselves in this way and that that is what we should be aspiring to and it basically just leads to self-objectification. You do generally see a divide in the advertising for men and women. Like men's is generally a bit more upfront. They're not hiding why they've got boobs in their ad. Everyone knows why. But women, particularly like kind of higher-end brands, it tends to be a lot more arty black and white the model's got a wistful look on her face or she's wearing something a bit quirky for whatever she is actually wearing it's kind of a nice class divide there as well the the arty advertising is more acceptable and that's marketing to women which is interesting because i think yeah this
3: the second sort of you know advertising that's aimed towards women i wouldn't say like makes women feel overtly unsafe it still has a negatively negative impact on women right but in a lot of ways it's almost as it's like it's designed to bring women in right so it doesn't it's got those it plays off of those like ideas about class ideas about like ideas about like you know wealth and beauty basically to bring women to bring women in whereas the other sort um like the sort that's you know targeted at men almost because like so mate, it's a a great way of making money is splitting the market right and Mm. like having a really like you know targeted advertise and like having your like advertisement often quite targeted and a lot of like brands do sell themselves on masculinity a lot of like beer brands or like i don't know men's shaving things or like you know Lynx deodorant um are all like you know sold on masculinity and i think having that like really exclusionary um advertising towards women like advertising that not only brings men in via these sexualized images but drives women out via these overtly sexualized images i think you know serves like an capitalist like you know advertising purpose they're basically like a you know making women just feel wildly uncomfortable because it's such an overtly sexualized like image of women and B, like the whole like you wouldn't want to spray yourself with lynx deodorant you'll spontaneously sprout leg hair and become a lesbian
2: yeah i think that there's sort of this very there's good research to say that even if women aren't feeling overtly uncomfortable when they're looking at things it does sort of contribute to a culture of the, the constant reminder of your physical presence and how you're sort of um, projecting things in the world I and mean, the images that you see reflected back to you of people like yourself means that women you know have a lot of self-checking behavior so that they'll check their appearance much more often than men they're much more aware of how they're perceived they're much more you know they have this internalized gaze that's sort of they're looking at themselves being looked at because they're so, we're constantly reminded of our physical presence and how we look and how we're sort of presenting to the outside world So it results in a lot of mental energy and a lot of time that goes into self-checking and it's it's sort of reinforced by the sexualized advertising that we see around us.
3: I think that's actually also an important way that, yeah, women are kept out of the public sphere, right, and out of public life, is that, you know, you just have less time for public life and you're going to be less wanting to go do it if you have to, you know, spend an hour or however long it takes putting on makeup and shaving your legs and all that sort of thing, like those... Mm beauty standards and all of that do function as a tool, like, to make it harder for women to go out in public because women have to, like, go through the ritual body altering before they're, like, permitted to go outside without over harassment or without feeling like terrible because of that like you know internalized male gaze because of that like constant self-surveillance so yeah no I think you know before when I said that that like class of advertising directed towards women doesn't keep women out of the public sphere that was probably incorrect though um because it does it, it keeps women out of the public sphere via enforcing that self surveilling self surveilling behavior that makes it just harder to go out into the public sphere hmm. so,
0: yeah, yeah and the sort
2: of the reminder that Exists somewhat as an object and not just a, and, and not a, you know, not a subject and an agent, but you're also a consumable thing. I think is often the message that we absorb from things like that.
0: Something that I think about a lot with like sexualized advertising and sexualized imagery in public is that so much of it would not fly in a lot of workplaces a lot of like a lot of corporate or um off or like i know i know it's a big thing in universities and other environments like that you're you're not allowed to put up any kind of sexualized pictures of women or anything around your workplace because it's considered sexual mm. harassment which i think is a pretty fair assessment but then like i, I work in a shopping center and i walk past honey badette whenever i go to work for anyone who doesn't know what that store is it's um Ooh, but basically, what you need to know is that their their um, imagery, like in their front windows, is generally massive photos of women in lingerie, and it's really sexualized. And a lot of what they wear is very see through. Um, my favorite is the one where they had to actually Photoshop out the woman's nipple because you could see the entirety of her breast in the photo, and it's you know, it's a very porny kind of sexualized gaze. And I think about the fact that in a lot of workplaces, this would not be acceptable. Yeah, everyone who's working in this shopping centre is being subjected to it, and every woman who is coming to the shopping centre is being subjected to it. And, like, that's one of the ones that's directed at women as part of that self-objectification.
2: Yeah, and I think it's important to stress here that the issue is not the nudity per se, mm. and this is an important distinction between, I guess, um, a sort of, more conservative analysis and a feminist analysis. It's not the issue is not the the nudity. It's the way that women are presented and the, the sexualisation and it's very, you know, images are very powerful and they there's there's a lot of messages that can be sent with things like that and the way women are posed and the way they're made up and the way they're the the body types that are displayed and the way that mm. you know all and the expressions on the women's faces and all of these things kind of combine to make to make it very clear the messages that are being sent by these images and it's, the, yeah. So it's not the nudity that's the issue, it's the presentation of women sort of as, as objects for consumption.
0: I think also a really important part of that is, you know, it goes beyond the picture itself. Like part of the context that this advertising happens in is that messages about women, they're not just communicated by what is included in these images and advertisements and everything. They're very much also communicated by what is excluded your way less likely to see a picture of a black woman like you do these really highly sexualized images of white women partly because black women are not desirable in the same way under patriarchy they're like as women subject to racial oppression they're not held up in the same way that white women are also if you put a black woman in that sort of highly sexualized pose you're much less likely to get away with it like partly because people are just not going to find it as titillating to men basically but they're also going to see it as more sexual than the exact same image of a white woman because of how black women are treated under patriarchy and white supremacy
2: yeah i mean i would argue that actually yeah that black women's bodies are often sexualized more and not only sexualized more but their race is often often fetishized and sort of becomes the point of the advertising like i've i've seen for instance black models use disproportionately to advertise products like chocolate and there's sort of this, this – that, that the emphasis is put on their dark skin specifically and it's also – yeah, it's often – yeah, there's this very strong racial undertones that, yeah, that add to the objectification, which is actually, yeah, a good way to sort of bring this back to a discussion about public space and the sort of the important layers that happen when you – I mean, not only are women excluded or made to be uncomfortable in public, but this can be doubled when – they're women who face extra forms of oppression so for instance you know disabled women are not only included as as women and made to feel uncomfortable as women but they' often will face uh, extra issues of things like accessibility which can make you know their exclusion from public space sort of twofold uh, Muslim women this is this is a very current thing that happens off you know will face if, if they're visibly Muslim face um, extra harassment not only as Female people, but you know, if they're wearing a hijab, for instance, they're more likely to be targets of racial violence. You know, Aboriginal women in Australia face you know harassment and violence on the basis of their race, but also relatively recently there were legislative barriers to their participation in public. You know, in Perth, for instance, uh, until the 50s, Perth was a prohibited area, and there was a 6 p.m. curfew, and Aboriginal people were completely excluded from the, the inner part of the city after then. So it's sort of, yeah, I think it, that's a discussion worth having as well as the, the effect of extra forms of prejudice and exclusion that can affect women who face multiple forms of oppression too.
0: Mm. I'd say that, yeah, that legacy is definitely continued today in terms of another barrier for Indigenous women in participating in public life is harassment by police. Like if you're particularly mm. around the city often enough, like you will see it, Aboriginal women being... Either picked up for things, or questioned, or being approached for the police that a white woman would absolutely never, in a million years, be approached for by police. And so that's depending on which particular feminist analysis you go to about the role of kind of the state and male violence through police and that sort of thing. But it's definitely a like an intersection of male violence and white and white supremacy on Aboriginal women preventing their participation in public life?
2: All right, so um, we've had a bit of a discussion about a few different sort of categories of things that can affect women's ability to participate in public. The first, we've sort of talked about the societal and um, environmental things that can make a difference to how women feel. So there's sort of this this threat of violence that we're all aware of on a conscious or an unconscious level and that we've sort of been raised as girls to be very aware that those threats exist to us, which can make a difference to how comfortable we feel in public and how much we're likely to, to participate publicly and to sort of go out by ourselves and to you know do things outside the home. And it's reinforced by things like catcalling, which has the the, the effect of reinforcing that, that men can sort of transgress our boundaries and harass us when we're in public with very little consequence. Uh, sex as advertising can also function as a reminder that women sort of exist to be looked at and exist as objects in a lot of contexts and this reminder that how we look is very important, and how was and you know that that others' perceptions of us can be instrumental forces in our lives. We've touched briefly on legislative things that have uh, made a difference to women's participation, particularly Aboriginal women in Australia, who were um, often legally excluded from being out in public. Um, so now I just want to talk a little bit about some of the the physical environmental things that can also make a difference to how much women can participate in how long they can spend outside the home and that kind of thing. So we touched briefly before on street lighting, which can have an effect on how just how comfortable people feel. But it is, I think it's worth talking about this, those environmental factors that can make a difference, A, to how safe people are and B, to how safe they feel and so how likely they are to actually make the decision to, to go out and to use public space. And another one uh, that I think is, very important and actually quite interesting because there's a lot of history here that we sort of take for granted and don't really talk about anymore is um, the existence of women's toilets. So this is – having having public toilets is actually a relatively recent development and having them for women specifically was something that we actually had to fight for. It, it wasn't taken for granted and it was something that helped to keep women out of public life not only in the streets but also in the workplace. So. Places like factories often wouldn't have um, sex-segregated facilities and that made it very difficult for women to go to work and to participate. Um, so this this is about the West specifically because in many parts of the world this is still a very big issue and there are actually big um, campaigns running about this, which we'll get to more in a second. But basically the, there was a – in London um, women were campaigning for public toilet facilities for women from about the 1850s on and then they were finally – uh, the first ones were installed in Camden, I think, in the early 1900s. And there was, yeah, there's there's two sort of historical views on this. And one has sort of said that, well, this is about Victorian moralism and prudery and this idea that women should be kept separate and they were a bit more pure and so they needed their own facilities. But it's actually, um, there, were, there were women campaigning for the provision of women's toilets and it was much more couched in terms of women's safety and ability to participate in public life. And there was actually quite a bit of resistance to it at the time as well. So the first, there was a, the first ever um, public toilets in Camden in London where there was a model put in place before they were actually built and handsome cab drivers used to drive into them on purpose to demonstrate that, you know, it was in the wrong place and they, they weren't wanted. So I think that that is really demonstrative of the desire to exclude women from public space and the, the backlash that women get when they try and make a stand and actually say, no, we have a right to function outside, we have a right to leave our homes and we have the right to be comfortable and we do so and to be safe when we go to the toilet. Um, and so that, that was sort of the situation in London, but that was echoed in Australia. So there was a similar campaign around this in Melbourne. The first public convenience, as they say, was for men was built in 1859 in Melbourne, uh, but women didn't get one until 1902. So that's very reflective that there's a lag that it's taken to recognise that actually women have the right to feel safe. And it, it is incredible. I, we take these things for granted now in in the West specifically, but it is it makes a massive difference to how, uh, long you can leave your home for if you don't have anywhere where you can safely go to the loo. And so that's sort of a, that's that's something that we take for granted now. It's it's a legal requirement in public buildings that you have to have uh, facilities for both sexes. But in some parts of the world, it's still a very big issue. In India, particularly, there's campaigns like the Right to Pee campaign that are running to get uh, public facilities for women because there's very real health consequences for this, uh, not only in the, the violence that women face quite regularly when they they use public facilities that aren't sex-segregated, but also um, things like high rates of UTIs when women don't go to the toilet for hours and hours and hours and hold it in because they haven't got anywhere safe to go. So, yeah, I think talking about those, those physical provisions for women's safety is also a very important discussion to have around women's ability to participate in public life.
0: It kind of shows how much of... I guess women's history around participation in the public sphere we're kinda ignorant of given that until, you know, doing a bit of research about this for the podcast, I'd never heard of the fact that women had to fight for public toilets. You know, you oh, you kinda oh. always hear the um like the Victorian explanation for why men's and women's toilets are sex segregated. And you're very right that we take it for Sorry. granted. Like I don't think it ever occurs to anyone that those sorts of facilities if they're old enough could have been put in decades and decades apart in time like women's participation in public space is still a like relatively new thing in the west and is something that women are still fighting for in other parts of the world it's something that yeah we really do take for granted and i think that means that we don't see the ways in which it is still under threat here and the ways in which we are completely ignorant of the situation of women in other
3: countries. Yeah, no, I think that um, we 100% yeah, take for granted things like women's public toilets and also just, yeah, our capacity to participate in the public space and that, yeah, taking it for granted makes it really easy to ignore threats to it and like current barriers that women have to it because it seems like preposterous to us that we wouldn't that like women would not be allowed to like into the public sphere that we would not be able to like go to the shops or something like that and i think it also plays into the fact that we tend to look at barriers to women's participation particularly in regards to the public sphere um we tend to fall into analyzing it from you know like a legalistic framework of like well there's no law in place so therefore like In a liberal democracy, there's nothing that's actually stopping us from going into the public sphere. There's no barriers, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is obviously not true. Like, there could be really blatant barriers, like just not having a toilet or, um, you know, more subtle Mm -hmm. ones like, you know, sexist advertising or, you know, catcalling as a threat of, like, violence and that sort of thing to keep them confined to the home.
2: Yeah, so I guess this is probably a good time to start talking about uh, some of the the ways that women have been – have fought back against the – Uh, some of the things that are impacting their participation in public. A few different things to talk about here, I guess. So bringing it back to that that first discussion we were having about, um, you know, sort of the threat of violence and stuff, and this is a very um, classic thing that's been going on that was started as part of the second wave is the um, take back the night and reclaim the night marches.
0: Mm -mm -mm. yeah Um, i'd say they're definitely the most visible of women's like protest efforts around the public sphere
2: yeah yeah and these were sort of they began in the um, mid to late 70s actually um in quite a few different places so in, in north america and in various cities in europe yeah the idea was women making making a stand and going out in in response often um to violence that had happened in local areas and the murders of local women women would band together and go and you know, take these marches to the streets at night with this idea that, you know, this whole, you know, 8 to 12 hours a day was inaccessible to women because the threat of violence was so pervasive that women didn't feel safe on the streets or they weren't safe on the streets. And, yeah, it's a very <coughs> visible reminder, of, yeah, that that need to sort of reclaim that space and reclaim that time as well. Mm. This might be, I think, another one of those things that we sort of maybe not, not take for granted but that there's... It's so It's so normalised that we just... Well, you know, after dark, it's not really necessarily a good idea to walk around. That, you know, and and reclaim the night is something that's not as as big as it was 30 or 40 years ago. That we've sort of, yeah, we've we've become accustomed to just accepting that that's, that, you know, the night is not a safe place to be. And it's, you know, it's a bit silly to go out if you, yeah, if you want to stay safe. And it's sometimes because there's no alternative perspective, you don't realise how normalised it's become, but also how messed up it is that we, that there's this whole, Thing where it's like, no, you've, you've just got to stay inside. But reading some things written by women who've been to mistrust actually was really sort of eye-opening to me because that's, you know, women's land and women's space where women felt safe to walk around at night in the bush on their own. And, yeah, women have described that sort of incredible feeling of freedom because they're, they're in a space where they're finally free from the threat of violence and they can actually go out and enjoy the night and be outside by themselves in the dark, which is almost quite an unusual thing for some of us and I think we don't even realize because it's so normalized we don't realize the effect that that has on our lives but yeah I found that quite quite amazing realizing that contrast
3: yeah and I suppose um just the lower attendance at reclaim the night rallies and that sort of thing or like you know the ceasing of them even to exist in some cities is um probably symptomatic of just the way the way that feminist discourse has shifted since you know the second wave and the fact that we've sort of entered this like weird kind of era of the assimilation of some feminist, but also some profoundly anti-feminist ideas into popular culture and that sort of thing. But I think, you know, hopefully we'll see a resurgence of people getting involved in Reclaim the Night soon. I think that the discourse is shifting a little bit. And so, yeah, I just urge people to get involved in your local Reclaim the Night chapter, like the one that we
0: have here in Perth. Look us up on Facebook. Shameless. I'm (laughs) unstoppable. Another group that's doing um, some kind of cool stuff is Collective Shout who are, yeah, like they're an activist or I guess you'd say awareness raising campaign, but they also do a lot of um, action in terms of lobbying the advertising. Standards Bureau. Thank you. Yeah. um, To remove degrading advertising. And they've got some quite interesting stuff in terms of information, but they also run a lot of campaigns (laughs) to desperately try and get help and get some community support in taking down particularly bad um, images that are in public. Yeah, no, so I encourage everyone to give Collective Shout a look and see if there's any of their activities that you'd be interested in because I'd say that they're like the most visible feminist group at the moment who are actually tackling sexualized imagery and advertising, particularly towards children. And they have had some successes. They've actually been kind of successful in taking down and well, and having some things taken down, which is kind of impressive when you consider that the task that they've taken on is kind of insurmountable in a lot of ways. There's always something else popping up.
2: Um, yeah. So one of the campaigns that uh, Collective Shout has been involved in, in conjunction with Wicked Pickets, which was started specifically to deal with this issue is about uh, the wicked camper vans in Australia. So, for anybody who's not seen them, they're um, camper vans with sort of spray paint and graffiti on the side, and they're supposed to be a little bit edgy. But a lot of their uh, slogans are quite sexist and quite sexualized. And um, there was a campaign started in 2014 by a woman named Paula Obia. I hope po- I've pronounced that right. She was driving with her daughter, and they saw a wicked van that had on the back of it, inside every little princess is a slut who wants to try it just once. And this is obviously something which is—I mean, it's gross enough to see it as an adult. But it was also, I think, her her young daughter found that quite distressing. And so she then uh, started this campaign to get Wicked to stop putting these slogans on their vans because they—they they do have a lot that are quite, um, quite sexualized and quite some of them sort of, yeah, promoting sexual violence. I mean, with some of the ones that I've found. Uh, looking things up for the nice legs, what time do they open? Um, I can already see the gaffer tape on your mouth and it is better to beg forgiveness than ask permission, which is an old saying but is also in a sexual context uh, quite rapey, I think. So, yeah, that was sort of a campaign run around Australia and there's actually, that has been a bit successful in the sense that we've actually ended up with, the, the company was very, very resistant to, changing this they're they're framing it as a free speech issue and saying that they've got every right to write what they want on their vans but people have disagreed with that and there's actually been legislative change now so earlier this year in about february i think queensland introduced legislation saying that if uh people complain to the advertising the the issue is that the advertising standards bureau is relatively toothless when it comes to things like this they can people can send in complaints and they can forward them onto the businesses and ask them to comply but there's very little uh, that they can do in the way of enforcement. So this legislation has been introduced that now uh, if it's deemed, if things are deemed uh, unacceptable, the Advertising Standards Bureau and the companies don't comply, that they can now forward this on to the relevant department and have vehicles deregistered. So that was introduced in Queensland in February and recent legislation has just passed in Tasmania in the last month as well. Uh, so that's actually been quite a successful campaign. And I think it recognized like one of the important things about this is that it recognises the sort of, I guess, the different types of freedom that are at issue here. I think it's very easy to say that this is about free speech and that the companies have the right to paint whatever they like on the side of their vans. But as we were saying earlier in the episode, this is, I would argue that this is very much also about who has the right to public space and who has, you know, and that, to live free of the reminder that men are viewing them in a sexual way. And I think that women have the right to walk through public space without those constant reminders and without that, those sort of, yeah, basically large scale dominance displays is what I think things like the wicked vans come down to. So yeah, it's great that there's actually been a, a response to this, which might stop them putting yeah sexist and degrading things on there. Yeah.
3: It's worth also noting that like, you know, these vans don't belong to like individuals. They are like, rented out by a company. They're like rental vans. They are like a method of gaining profit and that is, you know, by definition advertisement, what they have on the side of their vans, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. This is a Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a really good point, actually, as well, that it's sort of it's not even even if you did want to have a debate about free speech, which I think is a conversation we're having and I think, you know, things like where you draw the line about what's what's acceptable and just, you know, a bit naughty and what's, you know, not good enough really. Um, I think those are those are debates we're having. But yeah, I think it's very that that is a very important point. These aren't sort of individual people's statements that they've decided to point to paint on the side of their cars as you know freedom of expression. It's it's a commercial tactic used by a company, and it's advertising, and so it should be sort of subject to these standards.
3: Yeah, I find it really hard to find, like, a company a particularly compelling free speech crusader at the end of the day. Like, I'd have a lot more sympathy if these were people's, like, individual, like, actions rather than clearly, like, a targeted, deliberate marketing strategy of wicked Camp events just being, like, real edgy, basically, as their branding. Mm. And fundamentally, yeah. like, building their brand around, like, that kind of edgy male violence against women, basically. Hmm, hmm.
2: I guess that ties into an even larger discussion about the place of companies in society and the sort of – the fact that, yeah, if you're making money off people and if you're sort of making money off people as consumers, that you do have a little bit of a responsibility there as well to not make society demonstrably worse in service of attention and advertising.
0: Talking about legislative and, I guess, government action towards – Like sexist advertising, Paris has actually just last week banned degrading depictions Mm. of women in advertising. And I'm actually kind of impressed with the half with the wording of um, this. I don't know if it's properly said to be a law or a rule because it's just um, been adopted by, I guess, what you'd understand to be the equivalent of like their city council. But um, like they're prohibiting sexist, lesbophobic and or homophobic stereotypes, as well as degrading, dehumanizing and vexatious representations of women and men, which is good because it's outright banned. But I guess in terms of seeking legislative change, you've always got to wonder who's going to be judging what these standards are. Like so many people argue that things that like I would definitely say is degrading towards women and dehumanizing and objectifying others will say that it's not like who judges those standards Um. is always a big concern but I guess that part of that is that if you are someone who supports advocating for change through legislation or or community rules that sort of thing depending on which level you implement it at is that you do need to be on their case, so to say, to make sure that the standards that you want to see are being reflected in decisions and things like that. And I guess in terms of the Advertising Standards Bureau, we just don't seem to have that, um, in addition to the Bureau not having any teeth whatsoever. But yeah, if you do want to go for legislative change, it does have to be a big effort that you really commit to in order to see change.
2: Yeah, I guess, I guess that sort of, yeah, it, it ties into that, the importance of having really public discussions about this and public conversations about what's acceptable and where we want to draw the line and that kind of thing. So I think, yeah, it, it is quite a nuanced issue. And it also, it's sort of, there's a discussion to be had about the usefulness of legislation as a tool in dealing with things like this.
3: Yeah, no, and I, probably... I, like the government's done something. I'm just sort of waiting for them to somehow use this to screw over women still. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, you know, like, like you know, I look at this rule and I'm like, it'd be great if Wicked Campervans stopped doing the thing and, you know, if this stops them doing the thing, that'd be good, but I'm, you know, just concerned that
0: the government's going to find a way to screw it up, but, you know, time will tell, time will tell, we'll see how this goes. Mm-hmm. I guess particularly if you're looking for, like, a lot a lot of the issues that women do have in existing in public and going out into public already are covered by the law in terms of harassment and sexual assault and things like that, minding the fact that In the case of the police and Aboriginal women, that's when the law is the issue. Um, Yeah, it's it's difficult balancing deciding whether you want to go for a legislative change that can be comparatively quick, although definitely imperfectly implemented, and a wider change to society, which is a very, very hard, long fight.
3: Yeah, I suppose it's probably about time to wrap up now. It's worth noting there are so many, like, countless other ways that uh, women are denied access to the public sphere and so many issues with, like, women in the public sphere. We didn't even touch on things like the fact that the internet is the public sphere, for instance, and, like, harassment that goes on there. So, you know, keep that sort of thing in mind. But, yeah, no, I suppose what we want women to take away is that like the discomfort women feel and the fear we feel going out into the public sphere is not acceptable, and it is like a feminist issue, and it is something that we can and should fight back against and work to change because a better world is possible.
2: Yeah, yeah, I guess that that sort of and the success of some of the campaigns that women have run around this are very important to take in mind as well because it is it's such it is something that affects women's participation. So it not only affects us as individuals, but it affects our ability to sort of organized as a class so it's a yeah it's an important thing to campaign around but it's also something that we we have had success with
3: and now it's time for our wrap-up of feminist events that are happening in australia this month so we don't have many events to share with you this month and it would be really great if people could submit any cool events that they're running or that they know of in their local area wherever you are in australia um, you can submit those via messaging our Facebook page or through the Google Doc that is available on our Facebook page, which is just Feminism Out Loud. So coming up this month, there are Reclaim the Night Perth organizing meetings. So the next one coming up is on the 22nd of April at 1.30 p.m. in the Aroma Cafe in the State Library. So, yeah, if you know any of any really cool feminist events, please, even if they're not, you know, explicitly radical
0: feminist, please feel free to send them our way. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Feminism Out Loud. If you haven't already, you should like us on Facebook. We've also got a Twitter and Tumblr and please subscribe to us on iTunes. We'll see you again when you tune in for next month's episode.